ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Sue Lowry grew up around music. Quite literally, she had a 200-foot radio aerial in her backyard. And after school, Sue trained as an opera singer. But she later found that for her, the most joyous, most meaningful way of engaging with music was teaching music to kids with special needs. When working in the UK, Sue took groups of non-verbal, wheelchair-using students up on the London Eye, into all the big museums and out to performances at the Royal Opera House, which she thinks of as the best multi-sensory room in the world. Back in Queensland, Sue began teaching at the Southport Special School and last year her community mounted a military campaign to make sure that Sue was voted in the ARIA Music Teacher of the Year. Hi, Sue. Hello. Tell me why it is that as a kid you had a radio aerial in your backyard. Because my father was chief engineer of 4AK and 4AK was on the Darling Downs and it was the sister station to 4BK in Brisbane. And my dad had worked there since he was about 12 or 13 when he joined as a junior during World War II. He had moved up through the ranks and become a senior technician. And then when I was one year old, he became chief engineer, which meant we went and actually lived in the station house in the residence attached to the station at the radio transmitting station. So we had a 200-foot aerial in the back garden. Was that dangerous, Sue? Oh, the whole place was a workplace health and safety nightmare. We were the first children, I think, that had ever lived there. I was the youngest. I've got two elder sisters. When we first went there, the grass had never been cut, I don't think. So mum had to keep me inside while dad tried to mow the half-acre paddock, which the house and the station and the aerial sat in. And I think he cut three or four snakes while he was doing the first uh, cut. And then the aerial itself, it was live. So if you actually touched the aerial and had your feet on the ground, you would get the full volt of electricity through you. So before mum let me out of the house again after dad had cut the grass um, and killed the snakes, dad had to build a fence around the aerial so that I couldn't touch it. And also there was rooms in the station itself. There was one room, and I lived there until I was 12 or 13, when my dad retired. And I never, ever went in that room because I don't exactly know what was in that room, but I was told there was live current in that room. So if you touch certain things in there, you could electrocute yourself. And as a little child, my mum used to say to me, you don't go in that room because if you do, you will die. And I think she was being, she was actually um, being um, very truthful, unlike a lot of mothers who make vague threats. Hers was a statement of truth. And she was so incredibly lucky that I was such a biddable child (laughs) in all times. If I was told, you don't go in that room because if you touch things in that room, you will die. Don't touch the aerial or climb over the fence. You just don't do that. I never did. And there was other things like... The transmitters used to be there. There was about three transmitters there when I was there. One was the first AWA one, and it was enormous. It wasn't used anymore, and it had these enormous valves inside it, and occasionally it used to light up like a Christmas tree. It was amazing if they ever had to turn it on. If they were doing some work on one of the newer transmitters, they would actually go back onto that old transmitter from... I think it was the late 20s, early 30s, that piece of kit. It was extraordinary. But the other newer transmitters, they all had doors on the back. And as a child, I was told, you never touch the transmitter and you never open that door. Because if I opened that door, I would have sent the station off air. So, you know, you just don't do those (laughs) those sorts of things. And it was a really quite weird place to grow up. We had house monitors on all the time, so the, there was radio going in our house all the time. What <laughs> sort of music or what sort of content was 4AK broadcasting? It went through a few different sort of iterations while I was living there. There was a top 40 station for a while and then they went easy listening because of the era that I was there, you know, the late 60s into the 70s. It was an era of 
fabulous female singers. I mean, I spent my life listening to Dionne Warwick and Petula Clark and Helen Reddy, you know. Big voices. Big voices. As a, you know, a six, seven-year-old, I did the best I am woman <laughs> that you could possibly come across. But I loved those, those songs and things like that. And that was my soundtrack of my life. And my mum went to work, back to work as a librarian when I was three. So I used to hang out at home with, with Dad and the techs <laughs> and I used to spend my whole time wandering between the house and over mucking around with the, uh, the radio technicians and I was taught to use the record player very, very early. So I spent... My mum had a huge collection of um, musical theatre. She loved... She loved a good show tune. She loved a good musical. So, you know... As a four-year-old, I used to sing, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair from South Pacific. And I used to spend my days quite by myself because my sisters were at school, either singing with the uh, record player or hanging out with the technicians over with Dad and they just amused the, the boss's daughter, I suppose. So you had the radio blaring in your house all the time. Was there a point where you got sick of that? You know, you wanted to be able to change the channel, turn the dial to something else? Well, you couldn't. You couldn't? Because or any, if you had a radio, basically you got 4AK all the way up and down it because the signal was so strong. Also that the, you know, the house monitors had to be on for Dad because, you know, Dad was working 24-7. He was, you know, that thing. So it was going all the time. We only really, really used to hear it if it stopped. Mm-hmm. So if we were eating dinner or something like that, and the radio, you know, the sound in the house stopped. Everyone would just stop really still and Dad would get up and take off because it meant he had to go to work. And in the night time, they'd turn the house monitors down low but they'd still be going and underneath the house, because it was a, a Queenslander so it was off the ground on blocks, we had the air raid siren from the RAAF base in Oki during World War Two. So it used to be strapped under the floorboards underneath mum and dad's bed. And if the levels got down low, like it went off air, that used to ring. (laughs) It used to shake mum and dad's bed. And it used to shake the house. But I don't know about my sisters. I was well trained. I used to sleep through it and, you know, wake up in the morning and go, oh, okay. But they had an air raid siren under their bed. Bedroom floor. Yes, but the worst thing about that was it used to go if it went off air, but a very popular song at the time was Bridge Over Troubled Waters by Simon and Garfunkel, which has got a really, really, really low, quiet bit in the middle, and that used to send the air raid siren (laughs) off. So, you know, it used to ring, shake the bed. Dad used to reach over, turn it off because he had a switch to turn it off, and then he would see it. Ceylon Silverbird coming out of the speaker. <laughs> and there was a lot of not mild coarse language at that stage. And then he'd be on the phone ringing up the announcer who was, a, who was in the next town in Toowoomba, <laughs> swearing about why they were told they were never to play that piece of music during the night. He hated he hated Bridge Over Trouble Water because it would set, it would wake him up for no good reason. So it was, you know, a bit bizarre. And sometimes if there was huge storms and the power would go out with us, we had huge generators that kept the station running. But the, the actual studios were in Toowoomba, which is about 30 minutes drive away, and they didn't have generators there. So if the power went off and the power went off in the studio, that meant we had a studio in the station. So Dad then used to take over on air and didn't matter whether it was a top 40 station, it didn't matter whether it was an easy listening station, he had a pile of records that used to sit on the bench. They used to grab the top one, which was French dance music or some (laughs) silly thing it was, and he would put that on and... (laughs) Every 15 minutes he would give a time call and say this is 4AK and then just keep that going while the radio announcer in Toowoomba would be packing up crates full of um, records 
and the cue master machines that had all the ads on tapes and everything and all the jingles and those, none of, no computer screens then, they would pack all of that up and they would put it in their car and they would drive through the storm and then come in and finish their shift coming out of the transmitter at Oakey. And, you know, you'd wake up in the morning after this massive storm, which you'd slept through and you'd slept through the thing, you know, ringing underneath the house. And then you would walk into the kitchen and you would see mum cooking bacon and eggs, but she'd have a tray there as well. And she'd be doing an extra plate on the tray and say, oh, are they broadcasting from the, from the station? And she'd go, yes, they are. you can take the train over. Remember, don't go, don't go in if the red, light's red. So you would stand outside with the announcer's breakfast, waiting until they put a record on, and then you would go in and give them their breakfast and then run back and get ready for school. So I've heard a lot of childhood and conversations. <laughs> I have never heard this childhood. So it's fairly unique. Some, some of the other techs who worked there with your dad, like Mr Hawkey, was oh, it? Mr Hawkey. He, he was the loveliest man and he liked he liked fishing. He really, really liked fishing. And as I said, you know, the techs used to spend a bit of time entertaining the boss's daughter, maybe to stop me singing, to keep me quiet because you had to be quiet while you're fishing. We used to sit on the front steps of the station and we used to pretend to fish. And he would bait up my, imaginarily bait up my hook for me and we'd put it on and we'd cast it out and we'd sit on the front steps and then he'd tell me, I think you've got a bite. And then I would wheel it in and then he would tell me what I'd caught, whether it was a jewfish. And, I, and mum would come home from work and she'd say, well, what did you do today, Sue? And I'd say, oh, well, we caught... Two flatheads and this and something else. So I'd spend all my time fishing with Mr Hawkey. You mentioned that your, your dad began working at the, the station during the Second World War. What were his memories of, of the station during wartime? Well, they, everyone, I think, who worked in civilian radio used to know when the Japanese Air Force were making some sort of push into Australian airspace because the message would come through to them that they had to turn off now because they didn't want the Japanese Air Force zeroing in on the um, signal and being having something to track in on. So he, he used to know that. And uh, I don't think there was anyone living at the station when VE Day was announced. And it was in the middle of the night. And my dad was the junior who lived the closest to us. And so in the middle of the night, he had to um, hop on his push bike and he had to cycle up to the station, get in and turn it on because in those days they used to shut down at night. It wasn't a 24-hour station in those days. And he used to go and he had to turn it on so the announcement could be made across Australia because it was in the middle of the night because it had happened in the Northern Hemisphere that there had been victory in Europe. What happened when uh, some members of the Air Force came to put on signal lights at that (laughs) aerial tower that you were describing? Well, they turned up and uh, Dad was a junior at this stage and they had to put navigation lights on because they'd set up an Air Force base and they were flying aircraft around, so they had to put navigation lights on it and the engineers from the Air Force turned up and they were given the safety briefing of you have to jump onto the um, aerial once you're on it, you can climb it, but you can't be touching the ground at the same time. So you had to just take a flying leap. You had to take, and it was harder when Dad built the fence because it was easier to take a flying leap off the ground. But when he built the fence around, they used to perch on the top of the fence like uh, like a little bird and then leap at it. So they used to leap across, and um, and instead of winding all of their cables around them and climbing and then dropping their cables down they held the end of the cable and started to climb. So that's something touching the earth. That's something touching the earth. By the time they got halfway up, their shoes were on fire and they had to leap off. So they left off, much to the amusement of my dad and his workmates, that they'd been so silly that they had to do that. And then they had to tell him, well, if you're going up again, wind the cable round you and go all the way up and then drop it down. So, yes, it was... Uh, it was an interesting thing to have in your back garden, but very pretty in storms because the lightning used to hit the top and then it used to arc 
like um like fireworks. You know when they light up the Eiffel Tower and that it, it goes all the way down like that. Well, the lightning would hit the top and blue flame would come all the way down it, and then it had big brass balls on the bottom, and that would shoot blue flame out across out across the grass. So it was a bit weird. And so you know we had a good view during during a storm, and I can tell you. The station, the house is not there. It was sold to a local farmer years ago, so it was transported away. The station is still there and it's an unmanned station and it looks very sad if you Mm. see it. But there is no way on this earth workplace health and safety would let that happen these days. No way would it happen. And all of this with this flame coming down and they're all wooden buildings at they certainly wouldn't let small children be living there. But we did and we all survived. Music was literally in your bones, it seems, right from day one. Is it what you wanted to go and study as soon as you finished high school? Well, when I got to the end of year 12, a person in charge of the choir there said, you have potentially a very large voice and they do not kick in and mature properly until you are around your mid-twenties, and they don't actually, till you're around your mid-twenties. If you go to the con now, you'll be 19 years old when you finish the con and no one will really know what to do with you and your voice and you'll, you know, you're better off. And thank goodness she said this, going off and doing a degree in something else. And I went off and I got a teaching degree. But after around five years or so teaching, you did enrol in yes. the con. What yes. kind of training were you given as a budding opera singer? What's involved? Well, you have your vocal training, of course. You have your language training. You have to do French. You have to do Italian. You have to do, oh, German. Are you learning the whole language? Yes, What's you, happening? You, you learn the language, but they are a stickler for pronunciation, trying to knock out any nice Australian so you're not speaking French with an oaky accent? Yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> so we had to do that. We also had to do stagecraft, how to move on the stage. You know, the, the instrumental students at the con always used to laugh at the singing students because, you know, when the singing students used to get up to perform, we used to walk on like we owned the stage and stand there because we used to go through classes where they'd send us back off the stage and you come in and then then they would change on how far you dip your head and how you dip your head to acknowledge your accompanist. And when you're walking off, if you're a male, you walk this. And we were trained in that. We were trained in how to move on stages, how to act. We were trained in fencing, in fencing? Fencing, because often you're asked to fence because they're period pieces. So we were trained in how to fence and how to parry and thrust. We were trained in dances, like how to do a polonaise. If you're in a Mozart opera, how you bow as a servant, an 18th century servant, and how you bow as an 18th century noblewoman, very different. How you move in a skirt. I often see brides and see them trying to manoeuvre these skirts around. I'm thinking there's, there's actually a technique for moving your train. So, But, yeah, we, we used to learn how to move our trains, how to get up off the floor if we're, you know, sprawled on the floor in a, in a fit of dramatic passion and then we have to leap up, how to manoeuvre your skirts so you can leap up and not fall over <laughs> your skirts and fall flat on your face. We actually used to have someone that used to train us to do that, so it was a really weird and uh, wonderful training. And in terms of the vocal training, Sue, tell me what it's like to be able to feel a piece of music and express it the way that a good opera singer can. What's it like on the inside? When you get it right, it's euphoric. It's absolutely euphoric. When you have complete control over your instrument and you can make it sail up to the top, but you can pull back the sound and control the dynamics and meld and change it to express the emotions, when you get it right, it's magic and you just feel on top of the world, even better if you're doing it with an orchestra. So you had this fabulous training. Were you able to get work as a singer after you graduated? Yes, I did. And I was working for Opera Queensland and around. I was working as a mezzo-soprano and I actually even did the schools tour Do you get to be a diva on the school's tour? Well, I was a diva on stage, (laughs) but you can't be a diva off stage because 
you've got to pack up your set, put your set in that, <laughs> put it in the in the, the vehicle, put it out, drive to the next school, do that, pack it up, get it going. You know, you can't be a DV, you just have to muck in and do it, but that's the life of any performer, I think. People see the glamorous bits, they don't see the unglamorous bits. What did the school audiences make of opera? Well, the weirdest one we had to do was School of the Air, and this was probably 1998. So it was before the internet for School of the Air. So they weren't seeing any images. They were just sitting by a radio having this come in. We had to do the whole show. So they couldn't see the show. And we're all singing and carrying on and doing all of this stuff and got to the end of it. And the the teachers who'd been sitting there watching it all happen said, oh, did you really enjoy that? And the kids went, it's a bit weird. My horse came to the the window and had a listen. (laughs) And the the teacher said, well, did your horse like it? I don't think he knew what to make of that. So there were all these kids, I don't know where they were or what they thought of this or what they thought they they were listening to. But we thought it was a great day because, you know, we didn't have to put up the set. (laughs) We just had to stand in front of the microphones and do it. So that was great fun. You headed off to London to continue your singing career and to make money along the way, you signed up for supply teaching. Where was your first school? Well, the way you get teaching work over there, you sign up with um, teaching agencies and the schools just ring the teaching agencies and they just ferry out teachers. And I put my name down and the first morning I got a phone call at seven o'clock in the morning saying, OK, we've got a day's work for you. Have you ever been in a special needs school? And I said, well, I'm not a special needs teacher. They said, have you ever been in a special needs school? And I said, well, I've been in two because when I'd gone the schools tour for Opera Queensland, I'd actually done two shows in special schools. And they said, oh, well, that will do. Will you go go into this school called um, Beatrice Tate in Bethnal Green, which is in um, the east end of London? I said, okay. So they gave me the address and with my A to Z, I popped up and I went to the door and I said, hello, I've never been in a special needs school before. They said, are you willing to learn? I said, yes. And I was there for a month and a half going from class to class, learning how to be a special needs teacher as I went. So you had really just stumbled into this by chance. They could have nominated any other school, conventional school that you would have toddled off to. Why did you want to keep going back? Well... A few things. A, it was fascinating because the students in special schools, they're not a homogenous group of of students. There's students with autism, students with cerebral palsy, students with profound physical disabilities, students who are perfectly able physically. But also, you know, on on a personal note, when I first arrived in London, when you work in special schools, you work with one or two TAs all day. So personally, by the end of the day, it was far better to have gone in and got to know six kids uh, with the help of two TAs and work in a special school and, and, you know, have other adults to help you through the day. So after a while, I just said, no, I actually really do like going into the special schools. And I was to be an extra teacher that would go into classes and work alongside other teachers and TAs to help support students. And that was amazing. Well, you ended up at the Queen Elizabeth II Jubilee School. What sort of backgrounds did those kids come from? They came from all around the world. We had within the school children who came from exceedingly wealthy families, you know, from Saudi Arabia and from um, Jordan and places like that where there wasn't a good special needs education so their parents shifted holus bolus to the UK So there was the mega wealthy because it was right in the centre of London. It was the city of Westminster's severe learning difficulty school. There was embassy children who were the the children of staff at embassies. And one of our buses would go down Embassy Row and pick them up from different things. They may have been the cleaners' children or they may have been the ambassadors' children, whatever. Those children would come. But also the city of Westminster at that time was the main holding and first place of reception for refugees and asylum seekers. They used to be housed in council blocks and go to the local schools. So if they had learning difficulties, they came to us. Part of my job 
was to help organise the translators and everything for the parents when they first arrived. And the parents would bring, say, their daughter, who was a wheelchair user, who was 16 years old. I can remember her com- one of them coming in. Her parents had basically carried her on their back as they had got out of the um, war in Afghanistan. And she, had, they, she came in and she was in her new NHS wheelchair. And she'd never been away from her parents because there had been no other care but her mum. And her mum's saying through the translator, but she will need to be changed and she will, she will need to eat and she's messy when she eats and this and something. And we're standing there saying, it's okay. And, and the mum's saying, you will change my daughter? You will, you will clean my daughter? We're saying, yes, we will. And she, she just couldn't believe that she had come to a country where her daughter was valued by other people, that they were going to care for her. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. You can find more Conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Tell me about one of your students at that school in London, a girl that I think many of the other staff were cautious about, even afraid of. Yes, there was one girl. She did walk. She was she was one of our um, ones that uh, walked and was physically able. But for most of her time, she was in a self-absorbed, non-connected state with the rest of the world. She would rock, just rock from side to side, except every so often she would reach out and scratch or grab a member of staff and she would take skin out when she did. The staff were terrified of her. They really, really were terrified of her and probably rightly so and came in and said, right, yeah, we're going to do this. We're trying to build a connection with this young lady. She did make some sounds but, you know, we tried from a distance because she never wanted to get too close, from a distance trying to engage in what she was engaging in to see if she would clock all that, you know, we value who she is because most of us learnt the the fundamentals of conversation in the first year of our life. All of that time spent with a caregiver that does that to and fro. Baby makes a sound, you make a sound and you, you create these dialogues. Working with these children to say, well, we're going to do that to try and build responsiveness between us and them. And um, if we got in front of her, she would just turn and face the other way. If we got in front of her that way, she would turn. She was always trying to avoid connection with us. And one day in class, she let out this enormous, ha! And (laughs) en masse, the five of us all just went, hop, back to her. And she looked at us. Then she just smiled and laughed and then went back to a rocking. We all looked at each other and went, oh, that was interesting. Said, well, next time she makes a noise, we'll be there. And steadily, over time, she got to love to interact with us. She went from a kid that if we were taking her to go to the toilet, two staff had to go in there and one was basically there to protect because you were very vulnerable when you were trying to change her, to that we could change her by herself. We taught her how to ride a trike and she used to ride this huge trike around the place. We taught her a commun- you know, a, an object-based communication system where we had a timetable laid out of what she was going to do in the day and... Um, we would take the things out, which was an object, and, and what told her she was going to ride her trike is we fancied up her trike, you know, with those telltale fan tails out the handlebars. Streamers. Streamers out the handlebars. And so we had one of those, and she would take that with the bike. 
Well, she got to the point where she'd see the timetable we put out for the day and she would go over and she would rearrange her own timetable and put it there and then look at us and we'd go, OK, we'll let you do that because you've told us exactly what you wanted to do. We got to the point where she had never, with her family, been... um, They used to try and get her to medical appointments, but it was a very unhappy experience. But in time we were able to take her out and this took, you know, two, three years and to get the confidence of the parents that she would be she would be safe with us. We took her everywhere. She rode the London Eye, she went on boats down the Thames, she went everywhere and did all sorts of things and all manner of things. And her parents were just amazed as she left school at 18, 19 years old and she left just as I was leaving the school. So we left, we graduated from that school together. Her parents were going to buy a trike and they were going to do this and they said she's now got a life that she can live because mm-hmm. they could then take her out places because the only places that ever really tried to take her and manoeuvre her to get her to go were medical appointments and she hated them. So that moment of communication, the the moment that you and the other staff could echo back Mm. that sound, seems like that was a doorway that opened into a different kind of way of being for her. What's the magic of that? Is it connection? It's connection and feeling valued for who you are, that people think "Mm, you're worth listening to and I will communicate with you in something that you can understand and something that you can control. You know, that girl was beloved by the staff by the time she left. When she first used to come off the bus in the mornings, when I first met her, she used to walk to the classroom absolutely transfixed. She would walk and walk around and sit in her seat and rock. When she was in her final year of school, she would come in in the morning and everyone, all the staff from other classrooms, would shout hello to her and she would wave to people as she was coming down. She became a bit of a bit of a celebrity as she was, she was coming down. That might not be as euphoric as singing Puccini on stage, but that but must that's, be pretty that's close wonderful. to it. That's wonderful. And there's a photograph. It's one of my favourite photographs. It was taken right at the end and, and I was sitting on the floor and this girl came over and she was playing with my hair and she was standing above me just gently playing with my hair and there's a photograph taken of me. And one of the, one of the staff just went, oh, wow, all of us at some stage have gone across the bathroom floor with her pulling on their hair. Everyone was terrified of her being anywhere near their hair and no one was running to save me from her. That's pretty magical. Mm. And I wasn't the least bit worried that she was going to hurt me. Tell me a little bit more about those excursions and the kind of incredible cultural experiences kids at that school could have given where they were living and what you were keen for them to experience? Oh, well, it was Samuel Johnson who wrote the first English dictionary said, when you tire of London, you tire of life. London is the most amazing place. I mean, there's endless museums you can go to. And we used to have a nice relationship with a lot of the museums when they were trying to create new programs for schools and they wanted to create programs for students with very profound learning difficulties because we were in a city school and they would invite us into test drive things, which was great. We could go to the opera and the ballet and you're supposed to only get those tickets every two years, but they knew us so well at at the opera if for the school's performances and things like that, the wheelchair seats hadn't filled up. We used to get a phone call saying, so we've got uh, five wheelchair seats and companions. Do you want to come? Yes, we'll be there. So we used to used to go in. And what we... made the Royal Opera House so special as a space? Oh, because there's a full orchestra playing there. It's lit. There's colour, there's movement. You spend a lot of time in special schools creating multi-sensory rooms, but nothing is as good as that. We went to all sorts of things and we got all sorts of things in because we were the central London school. The English National Opera and the London Symphony and everyone used to come and visit our school and do workshops in our school. Some of our kids had better CVs than most professional actors that they'd performed with this (laughs) and that group. 
And even like I was reading something from the Royal Shakespeare Company that said they were doing school tours in London, etc. So I just as cheeky as anything wrote back and said, coming to London, have you ever worked, done your workshops in a special school? Got the email back from um, Royal Shakespeare Company saying, no, but we think it is something that we would like to investigate. So we had the Royal Shakespeare Company come in and work with um, students in our school. They worked for a more able post-16 and my class, class five. Did things ever go disastrously wrong, though, Sue? I mean, (laughs) taking kids and students to performances, this can go wrong in so many different ways. (laughs) That happened with your students? Well, no, not really, because for my class... They were safely with their staff, they were in their chair and we often would get parents to come with them. For our more able students, if they were going to go to the to any performance, whether it was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang or this or something else or something else, we would have set up role play and role play and role play in the school before we went. We would have tickets and they would know that they had their tickets and they had to sit down. We would role play when you clap, when you don't clap, you know, when you talk, when you stop talking, you know, all those sorts of things. If you want to say something to someone about how much you enjoy it, you wait until the end of the act. And I can remember once we were with a group, I think we were at the ballet. We were all there and it was filled with school children. It was the school's performance. And we're all sitting there together and our kids had done it. They knew when the um, conductor walked out, they had to applaud. And then they, they sat quietly and we got to the interval and some of our kids looked down at us and said, these other children, these other students from other schools do not know how to behave. <laughs> and we said, no, they don't. <laughs> and they said, they should know you don't talk. So they were absolutely on point with how to be a good audience member because we had taken the time to make sure they learned how to do it. After more than a decade in yes. in the UK, you came back to Australia and began teaching at Southport Special School and eventually became their specialist music teacher. What was the music program like when you began teaching there? Well, it was a time of rapid expansion because there's rapid expansion on the Gold Coast. The school was um, expanding so rapidly for about two years there hadn't even been a music room there would be a teacher who would go from class to class and, and do a few songs and put a few songs on. I was teaching there for two years and um, one of the deputies walked past me and said, you've got a music degree, haven't you? And I said, yes. And she said, and you've got a background in music? I said, yes. She said, would you like to be the music teacher? And I said, well, I think I would really like to stay working with the kids with the most profound and multiple learning difficulties because I said, I really do believe people who really care about working with kids in that space should be in there fighting the fight for them for quality education and not being just parked there in the too difficult zone. She said, "Mm, okay. The staffing list came out and I looked down through the list of the classes and I wasn't on the class list. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, (laughs) turned over the next page and my name was against music. And I had for a long time tried to keep two sections of my life separate. But I'd had a a vocal, she was head of um, voice and opera at the Guildhall in London. She was uh, my coach and repetitor for a long time when I was living in London. And she'd always said to me, there'll be one day, Sue, when you combine your love and passion for teaching students with special needs with music. And she said, I think that's when the magic's going to happen. And I said, okay. I like to keep them separate, Lenny. That's when the magic's going to happen. And anyway, my name was on the list and that was just before the Christmas holidays. Magic was happening whether you wanted it to or not. Whether I wanted it or not. (laughs) So I thought, radio. So I thought, well, I better work out what's the best practice. So I got online and I ordered every book I could possibly order on teaching music for students with special needs. And where do you start when you've got a new student or a new class and you're there as the music teacher? What's your first step? Get to know the students. People often ask me my advice and say, how do I teach a child with autism to this? Or how do I teach a child this with profound and multiple learning difficulties? And the first thing I will say to them is, well, what are their gifts and strengths? 
because that's the only place that you can start. You can't start and go, OK, this child has this and therefore they can't do this because that's no place to start anything. You go, oh, hello, who are you? And what are your gifts and strengths? And then we can start moving forward from that. So what sort of gifts and strengths have you seen students bring? Some are so gifted (laughs) that I just go, oh my goodness me, and they prosper regardless of me. There's one young lad who would still, when I would play a ukulele or sing, he would just still. And you could tell he was listening. So I thought, oh, well, if I tried to give him any instruments to play or something like that, I used to have to have good reflexes and duck fairly quickly because the moment you handed him anything, it was being pelted forward at velocity. It was coming forward to... But I thought... But he is interested in the sound, sound of me singing in the ukulele. And I thought, well, I'm going to get close to him. I probably might be able to get close to him with the uke because I got close to him with the uke and he, and he would still and he would have a listen. But for, you know, about two or so years, and he, it wasn't just me and musical instruments, it was anything. He wouldn't hold anything. He would take things in and hold them if he wanted them, but if he didn't want them, he liked brooms. <laughs> he would like to bash brooms around and such, but he wouldn't have anything in his space. And he was doing that to everyone. So for about two years, I knew that I was going to duck. And then one lesson, I handed him a little egg maraca and he put it in his hand and he was about to throw it forward and it went past his ear and he heard the sound go past his ear and he didn't let go and he pulled it back and he gave it a shake by his ear. And then he sort of stilled and gave it another shake by his ear and then he pelted <laughs> But <laughs> all his class staff and everyone went, that was something that was given to him that he didn't throw forward. And that was the first time he actually took an instrument. Now, oh, he'll have a go at anything. He loves picking up sticks. If I put uh, marimbas and things in front of him, he'll work out how to play them and play them with sticks. And you're thinking, yep. We've come a long way, but you have to look and go, well, there's my in, that he really does like music and he loves music. He loves a bit of thrash metal and all sorts of stuff. So (laughs) don't give him soothing um, sort of relaxation music to listen to. You know, if it's a good head banging thing, he will be there with you. So it's there's my in and seeing what he can do and where he gravitates. A lot of your students are are nonverbal. Are there ways that music can open up? Spoken language, does that happen as well? It does. And often, often the first recognisable words that they often say will be a lyric from a song or that you will hear them vocalising and then they will have something that sounds like a word and if you can recognise what they're singing and then sing it with them, the the joy on their face is, is just really, really exciting. But then again, valuing what sounds they can make. If I have a child that is not speaking yet but is making vocalisations, lots and lots and lots of years of training as an opera singer means that I'm very, very, very good at manipulating my voice to sound like other people's. So, you know, they really, really love it. If they have a, a, a sound that they make, if I can sing it, back to them and we often develop that call and response going back with them using their vocalisation and me singing with them and then I'll vary just slightly what they're doing to see whether they notice that I've embellished a little bit and then they will try, you know, and you can get this thing where they then try and use their vocal cords to their best to try and surprise me with what they can do. It's clear, Sue, what a gift this is music is for the students, but for the families, for, yes. the, for everyone who's involved in the school. How do Estedfords and <laughs> participation in Estedfords fit into this? Because I know it's something that you get your students to participate in. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because they get a chance to perform. They also get a chance to have life experiences that their mainstream colleagues have. And on the Gold Coast, which is a huge Estedford, 
Um, there is a day for young people with disability and we put a lot of performers in that. We usually put a couple of choirs, we usually put steel drums in there and it's a lovely day and those kids just have an absolute delight at doing and it's also really, really good for them to have the discipline of practising and practising for something and then actually doing it and then getting the applause for it. But we also have our number one ensemble, which are our best drummers, and they compete in the mainstream section against their mainstream peers. And uh, we've won three third places against their mainstream peers, and that's always a huge thing. Sometimes we don't win, and I always tell the kids, well, that's good. If we don't get anything, that means they're treating us as their equal. If sometimes we get a place and we know we've been very good and we've played really well, that's great. If sometimes we don't, if we walk off the stage and we have played our best, we have made ourselves proud, our parents proud and our school proud, there's nothing more to be asked and they've treated us as their equal. But last year we got third place and it is enormous for our parents because they go and they sit there And they watch it go through and they think, well, here's my child on stage doing such a mainstream thing and mixing it with their mainstream peers. And I can tell you they were announcing the winners and the cheer that went up for third place was greater than for the second or first place because our parents were ecstatic. They were so excited. So, you know, we get there. And it's great also for our kids to see their mainstream peers performing because our kids want to go every year because they like watching their their mainstream peers and they they, they say, you know, we're going to work as hard as them and we're going to get there. So you're just minding your own business, Sue, going about your work at the school. How did you come to be nominated for this ARIA (laughs) award? I hope she doesn't mind me saying this. The president of our PNC, Kirsty Scock, apparently was having a few champagnes one night and um, saw some Facebook post or something about nominating teachers for the uh, ARIA Award and uh, decided, I'll just sit down and I will write about Sue and send that off. So she did. And I was just turning my phone off before I went to bed (laughs) and 10.30 at night, This ping comes through on my phone and it's from Aria saying, congratulations, you've been nominated. (laughs) I thought, okay, do you choose to accept this? If you choose to accept this, you have to put in a submission that's of 800 words detailing your program, have two referees and you can put in a video and photographs. It closes in five days. And I thought, thanks, Kirsty. Well, I didn't know (laughs) thanks, Kirsty. They don't tell you who did it. The next day was the um, sports carnival and the PNC were all there helping us be safety officers around the edge because we're in a public park. And she said she was looking at me all day because she thought she'd just write nice things and that would be the end of it. She didn't know that. Then she got an email saying that they'd be asking me to do this and she thought, oh, Sue will be going cursing me. Well, I had no idea who did it, but I asked our principal and I said, are you happy for me to apply? And she said, yes, it is. And then I found out it was Kirsty. So then it goes to a popular vote. It the, does. The RA. So how did your community, your school community, swing behind the nomination of Sue Lowry? Oh, well, well, we were a special school and special schools by their very nature are small. We have about 200 students in our school. Some of the other um, schools had a 1,000 or so in and one of the, the finalists was across multiple primary schools. I'm not on social media, so I don't know. I have no idea what they were up to out there, <laughs> but led by Kirsty, the head of the PNC, the thought was, and ARIA lets you vote every day, once a day, on every device that you have. So Southport Special School staff and parents swung into action with a social media and voting campaign <laughs> that it was like a military event. <laughs> 
There were some households that were telling me that they had seven to eight boats were going in per day out of some household. I don't know if this is democracy, but it's wonderful. I don't know, because <laughs> the, whole, well, often. the whole thing was we were going to be the little school that could because we were thinking, how do you go against big schools? We are so tiny. We have to work hard. Our local state members the one from the neighbouring electorate and our electorate, they were pumping it out on their Facebook pages. Our local councillors were pumping it out on their Facebook pages. They worked out and they were putting instructions out to all the parents that if you were international and you had Twitter accounts, that you could vote internationally. So there was families all around the world setting up Twitter accounts so that they could put votes in every day. Some of our, our, our staff have families in India. There was massive families in India voting multiple days via Twitter. And this was going on for about a two-month period and it was relentless. It was strategic and it was successful because yes. of, at the ARIA Awards you were announced the yes. Music Teacher of the Year to yes. a standing ovation. Yes. You know, I was trying to keep calm because I, I knew I was there through the work of so many people, and if I won, it was through that massive military campaign that was put out. I was there and I knew I was there not only representing music teachers, but I was representing the importance of music education for students with disability. So my thought process was keep calm, keep cool, because if they announce you, you've got to get up there and this is my, my chance. And all those years of training at the con on how to manoeuvre your skirts, not trip up the stairs, <laughs> get on stage, stand like you own the stage and know what you're doing, came to the fore and I thought, well, I'm here. And, and it helped that I was in a gown and they used to be my working clothes, so I was there to work. I was up on stage and it was just... Any fencing? No, I didn't have to fence, which was good. And the heart of the message was it is important for everyone, including people with disability, to have quality music education and it does not matter how profound a person's disability is that they can engage in and make music. We just have to find a way for them to do it and that by finding that we can start shattering glass ceilings of expectation for these people and even our own ceilings of expectation of what we think people with disability are capable of doing. And that's what I wanted to get up there and say. And you did. And congratulations. So it's been lovely meeting you. Thank you for being my guest on Conversations. You're welcome. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Beverly Wang, the host of Stop Everything, the show that makes you smarter about pop culture. Every week, I sit down with a guest critic, and together we sort through all the hot takes flying through the pop culture universe. We help you decide what to watch or skip, and whether that long read your bestie dropped in the group chat is really worth your time. Stop everything. It's the show that makes you smarter about pop culture. Follow us now on the ABC Listen app.